Hey there everybody and welcome back to yet another episode here on the Desi Vesi podcast. I'm your host Akash Bhat and each week I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building companies all across the globe. Well today is a very special episode. I have somebody who's been helping a number of Indian B2B startups expand to the United States. Sitting across the table from me is Jen Abel. Jen is the co-founder of Jellyfish, a Boston-based firm renowned for its pioneering approach to assisting B2B startups to achieve early-stage sales proficiency and success in the United States. With nearly a decade's worth of experience, Jellyfish has empowered over 200 B2B and enterprise startups to validate their sales process and go-to-market strategy, demonstrating a commitment to delivering exceptional results. The firm's highly skilled team has proven track record of generating impressive revenue and driving substantial outcome for companies headquartered in Asia, Europe, Australia and North America. Gen and Jellyfish's ranges of service caters to diverse needs including acquiring first-time customers in the US, defining the US go-to-market strategy, or transitioning from a B2B market to mid-market and enterprise levels. Well the firm's expertise in this area is unparalleled and they've demonstrated a remarkable capacity to navigate and succeed in complex markets. Well if you're a founder sitting out of India and building for the US market then this episode is definitely a must listen for you. Jen and I sit down to talk about the transformation of the entire sales process in the United States over the last decade, the benefits of founder led sales, the right time for founders to be investing in sales teams her definition of product market fit and most importantly the common pitfalls indian founders face while selling in the united states so if one of those topics or all of those apply to you i would highly urge you to listen to every single minute of this episode this is a bible for most early stage b2b saas founders Well I know you're waiting for the conversation with Jen and for her to speak and share her insights so without further ado here is Jen the co-founder of Jellyfish Jen welcome to the Desi VC podcast I'm super excited to have you here how's it going It's going great I'm so excited to be here I know we tried to do this yesterday but you and I got way way too off topic talking about other things so I'm I'm glad to be here today and focused on uh focus on today's agenda. Well I just hope our conversation today is as engaging as yesterday because I really enjoyed our conversation yesterday. <laughs> so for the uninitiated Jen and Jellyfish provide B2B startups with early stage sales expertise to win the US market. So let me ask you this question to kick things off Chen. What led you to found Jellyfish? Talk us through the building yeah. blocks through your career that kind of got you here. Yeah, so I was always that first sales hire at a startup, more to cover the mid-market and the enterprise um segments. And when I get when I got hired, um the, you know, this was 2014, 2012. God, I'm dating myself, but um the idea was hey we're going to hire a salesperson you go out and talk to the market figure out what they want and then we'll build it so it was very much go out and sell it and then build it mm-hmm. um part of that was because these new segments were 
more of an experiment. And then part of it was just because they knew they had to crack it, but didn't know how. And what I quickly realized was a, a salesperson without clear guardrails, guidance, and knowns is just a chicken running around with their head cut off. Um, yeah. So I was constantly bringing the founder into these calls and saying, listen, I'm happy to sell this, but what are we selling? Whom are we selling it to? And why are they going to care? Because I, I don't even know how to inspire the market. And they said, get a few meetings and we'll figure it out. So I kind of just took the route of more or less setting up knowledge exchanges between me, the founder I was working for, and the customer, and realized how quickly we needed to test vision because having these random conversations and these kind of walkarounds led us to nothing. So I quickly learned just by making the mistake more times than one that in order to go to market and truly understand how to serve the market, you need to have a vision around what you want to serve and who you want to serve. So that led to this whole vision of Jellyfish, which is the founders themselves, they are technical, they're engineers, they're product visionaries, but they don't necessarily know how to navigate all of the ambiguity that comes with speaking to the market mm -hmm. and how to leverage that rejection to redirect them to a new learning. Because um, the market, especially in the US, no one, everyone's pretty nice, right? They're like, oh, this is cool, yeah. right? Cool is usually big red flag. When mm -hmm. someone says this is cool, there's nothing there. That's not really a, a substance. Yeah. Um, so how do you look for these things to truly understand what people care about, what they're prioritizing, what they're passionate about solving, and knowing where to dive deeper? And that was kind of the big aha moment we had to launch Jellyfish, which is how can founders get a commercial co-pilot to help them navigate all of the known unknowns that come with serving the market. It kind of reminds me of my time at Scrum Ventures when half the time when you speak to the Japanese clients or anybody that you try to sell in Japan comes off the first meeting and you you walk out thinking, oh, I've nabbed that deal. Because everybody's so nice to you inside the room and you kind of come off with such positivity and so, so much conviction knowing that this is probably be something that you will close. But fast forward a couple of months, you're still in conversations and you never know if you've actually closed something or not. So, hey, this is cool. Versus, oh yeah, we want to work with you. Let's sign the dotted lines. There's a big difference between oh, both those. It's as wide as the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. And, um, and go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say meeting exhaustion is a mm -hmm. real thing. Yeah. At the larger the company is that you're talking to. Everyone wants to make their calendar look busy, especially now, right? Everyone wants to be at the cutting edge and bringing in innovative thought. Mm-hmm. But that you need to be careful, right? Because that as a founder, you're so um, have such you're so time poor, mm -hmm. right? So you got to be really careful who you're spending your time with learning from and more importantly, um, advancing. It's a very good point that you bring up. And when I take a look at SaaS, to me, SaaS selling isn't as straightforward as selling consumer products. Although there can be an argument today that can be 
made by a lot of consumer founders that many consumer brands today have taken the enterprise SaaS playbook, especially in terms of sales. Mm. And SaaS is complex as you're not simply delivering a product as soon as you make that sale. Instead, the software needs to be supported, engineered, meaning that SaaS sales team must be engaged in a lasting consumer relationship to ensure that there's future sales as well. So when you do that, you not only involve various players within the organization, but also begin to understand the limitations to your product, define the scope of future product development cycles, rethink organizational structures, financial accounting, projections for future rounds of funding, should one decide to head down that path. And there are a lot of variables that kind of get into the mix. Now, having said that as the context for my next question, let me ask you this. What have you learned about the evolution of selling SaaS products in the United States? Mm. Let's focus on like an international company coming into the U.S. market. We'll start there and then mm -hmm. I can happy to explain kind of the evolution. Um, it can't be stated enough. Having product market fit in a local market, whichever market that be, never translates into the U.S. market. I've never seen it in the 300 yacht engagements we have done. I have never, ever seen it with my own eyes. Why is that? Uh, I think partially because some, a lot of markets, specifically you said Japan and you and I actually spoke about this yesterday, India as well, very relationship driven, right? I have a relationship with you. Therefore we have trust. Therefore, um, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. And mm -hmm. maybe I've adopted whatever you've built just to be nice, mm. right? And I'm not probably going to tell you that. I'll probably find a way to make it work and um, and ensure that you get what you need. Um, or um, they buy it but never fully get the value out of it and then they churn. Um, there's all sorts of different angles there. The U.S. market is so value-driven, right? You need to defend, especially right now in 2023, you need to be able to defend and go to back for any decision you are making, especially when that decision means taking budget or asking for money. Mm. And um, the U.S. has always been like that. They got a little soft in 2020 to 2021 or beginning of 2022, where money was so um, money was so cheap and people were willing to experiment. And they let their employees also make a lot of decisions because um employees had a lot of, you know, depending on where they were and how they were working, could be able to make some of those decisions for themselves in terms of how they want to do it to, um, to deliver their work. Mm -hmm. Now, there is this huge kind of tightening of the belt, not only from a budgetary perspective, but from a process perspective, because there was so much leakage uh, from a, from a not only cash perspective, but just technical processes, um, onboarding, you name it. And I think CFOs and operations leads have really come in to force the hand of what is the value? What are we getting? And how do we justify it? And that's where all decision makers are are sitting right now in terms of how they're how they're buying. The evolution of SaaS, it's interesting. I was just talking about this with a founder. I, I most first-time founders, which which is probably a large percentage of the market, right? Most first-time founders think that the hardest part is building the product, right? So they spend all of this time building it. And then they say, okay, this can go out and sell itself. 
or people will come find me when they're when they're looking for this. And that is a quick slap a slap, right? When that doesn't happen or work. And there's this interesting perspective of founders trip so much more selling a product, but if you, if you force them to sell their engagement as a consulting service, they're going to go a lot deeper, mm. okay? And and understand the why behind the why much clearer because they need to make sure they know how to hone in on that problem, right? And but we treat products so differently. It's kind of, I mean, of course it's not the same because you don't want to go off and sell consulting services. You don't want to sell differently every time. Yeah. But if you force the founders in the early days to sell this as a consultant service and say, oh yeah, I can help you solve that problem. Instead of anchoring and, and relying on this product, relying on their scale sales skills to build a scope of work. I think founders would be in a much different place. Um, in terms of their sales model and process, because the insights you collect when you start to treat it like a consultative sell, yeah, allow you to understand the customer way more better and deeper than anything else. And at the end of the day, it's who understands the customer at the deepest level that wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so our founders, will usually, you know, a lot of the pe- folks will say, well, selling consulting is a lot easier than selling product. Yes, that is true. Um, but I think there is a misnomer that founders over index on relying on a product to sell itself and just racing to demo and yeah, racing yeah. to demo will always kill your sales process. Yeah. You bring up a very interesting point and uh, very early on in my career, in my career, I was given this piece of advice by my uh, ex-boss and you know, I love quotes. So I'm going to quote him again. Yeah, please. Um, he said, people don't care to see everything about your product and what it can do, especially things that you think are cool about your product. All they care about is what will help them. 100%. And that's all they need to know. And he said, period. That's all is that's what enterprise sales is all about. It's what can your product do for, for me and what value is it bringing to my company? And that changed the way that I approach sales, which included customer discovery, prospecting, product demos, everything that you talked about, right? Because you get to a, a special level where you start caring about what is important for your customer as opposed to what cool things your product can do because no one really cares about the cool things that you really have. Um, And that one thing can define the tone and narrative of a sales call and therefore the entire sales journey in and of itself. You You have very little time to capture somebody's attention when you're selling software, especially. It can be very nuanced. You need to empower your customers to understand your product at a deeper level, as you mentioned there as well. And one observation I've made, and this is perhaps rooted very culturally, comes and very comes very naturally to Americans is building relationships. And mm. sales is always about building relationships and less to the actual selling part. Yep. And uh, what I mean by that, and for some of the listeners, is it's all about relationships, the trust you're able to create. We talked about it, you know, countries like India, Japan, Korea, where relationships are more important than just a transactional um, encounter. And most Indian founders perhaps have an outdated opinion um, uh, on this. And I could also be outdated with my translation of this thought because I do see a new breed of entrepreneurs who are coming with it with a different approach. But to a certain degree, most first-time or junior founders have this sort of an approach and they come here to the US, they try to sell early, go in aggressive, and that doesn't really work in building a long lasting relationship with anybody. It's and it true. ends up quote unquote on a bad sales experience, right? Yep. You're spot on. I mean, I, I constantly say this, 
the natural competitive advantage any startup has day mm -hmm. one is founder-led sales. Yeah. Because the fastest way to build trust is two things. One, the founder being the first point of contact and that continued point of contact for your early adopters, mm -hmm. right? If I know that I have a direct line into the founder, that, that tells me a lot. That means I'm going to get served. I'm going to be prioritized. I now have, I can now go directly up the chain of command and let them know if something is not working. Yeah. Okay. So founder-led sales is a natural competitive advantage that a lot of first-time founders want to delegate as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. The second is the more specific you are, the more it feels like it was built for them. That's what sells. So to your point, no one buys a platform on day one. They buy a single entry point. Yes. And when you can just sell that single entry point, all of a sudden the market's going to be like, wow, this was built specifically for me. Right. And when you start to show them a lot more than what they want, all of a sudden they're not going to say, wow, this is $50,000. I'm really only going to use 10% of it. I don't know if that's, that spend is worth it. Hmm. And people will start to put a value on if you start them more than what they want, that actually erodes, erodes value versus creates value. It's this counterintuitive thing. So I couldn't agree more in terms of building trust and relationships. It starts and ends with the founder, especially in the early days when you don't have case studies and references. And two, the more specific you can be regarding that very clear entry point, yeah, that's where things become repeatable. But more importantly, that's where trust gets you know accelerated. I couldn't agree more with you. And I've had some experiences selling myself. And I've also been part of you know, organizations where I've had a chance to look at the sales team. And one such experience was when I worked at City Football Group, which was at New York City FC when I was in New York. I did an internship there for six months. But what it really allowed me to like get a, in, an insight into was how the teams sold premium seats and premium packages, mm -hmm. um, suites to basically organizations and companies and getting them an opportunity to, you know, come and watch the game. But it was never about, hey, the suite has all of these amazing sofas and couches and, you know, all these experiences. It's less to do with any of that, but it's about, hey, what kind of clients do you have? They've gone through the clientele. Okay, you've got these set of clients. You've got clients that are big tickets. You've got client medium tickets and small tickets. Here's what we can do when you get a big ticket client into a suite. This is the experience that we can create for them. And yep. before you know it, you're not even talking about the game. You're not talking about the suite. It's about what experience can you create for your clients? It's less about me even yep. trying to sell it to you. I'm yep. selling it to your clients. And for me, if I'm at a founder listening to that pitch, I'm like, oh, great. This is great for my business because my customer is going to be happy. I don't care about the game. I don't care about going to the Yankee Stadium to watch an NYCFC game. It's more about what can I do for the clients that I have? And I really saw something that was different in terms of how the sales process was structured in and of itself it's less to do about everything that we have and more about what we can create here and that creation that narrative really appeals to a lot of people at the end of the day because fundamentally we're human beings we want yep. experiences we want to feel good when we use a product and with SaaS, it's so difficult to actually you know hold something in your hand it's not tangible it's you've got yeah. to see it at play sometimes and most you know services like the cloud it gets even more difficult when it gets into like spaces like that because you really don't even see them getting plugged into some of your systems it's all happening at the back end that's exactly right it's exactly right and i think with saas back in you know i would say more than 10 years ago 
all of the risk lived in, can this product deliver what I am selling? All the risk lived in the product, right? But products have gotten so, um, uh, so much, I, I use the word quotes because I want to be careful here, so much easier to build because there's so many more tools available to developers and engineers. I mean, look at the size of the um, solo entrepreneur category. That alone is proof that it's not that it's not as hard as it used to be to build product, right? So um, it all comes down to the risk lives in the go-to-market. And that go-to-market risk is how well do you know your customer and what they care about? That's where all the risk lives because right. you'll never be able to crack it speaking in truisms. What's a truism? How many emails do we get where they're like, hey, are you looking to drive more revenue and more leads? Of course. That doesn't build trust. That just tells you I, that you, you can state the obvious, yeah. right? So how do you get extremely specific, right? And to your point, deliver on deliver to the exact value you know X is seeking to achieve. Yeah. And you can't scale it on day one. Zero to one in early sales is not about scale. Scale is such a misused word. First, can you do it manually? Hmm. Second, or can a founder do it? Second, is can you is there a similar process that can be run over? And can a non-founder be able to achieve it? Hmm. And then you can start to think about scaling with headcount. Um you know, the jury's still out. I, I mean, I'm maybe I'm biased. I'll be the first one to say this, but this whole product-led growth movement, right? That is putting the product at the center, mm. right? Um, where your customer needs to be educated, right? Part of it is, are they educated enough to know how to use this and the problems they have? Um, product-led growth works in some examples, but product-led growth is not a go-to-market that everyone can leverage, Maybe it's a much smaller um, opportunity, right? For some, meaning, you know, there's only a finite number of people that also know how to use this and know the value they're looking for and the problems they're looking to solve. Yeah. Right? There's so much more education that, I mean, that this the team needs to do, especially in the early days. It's a very small sample size, but I do think second time founders do is better at first time oh, yeah. Because they've had that experience and they know how to couple both founder-led sales experience with uh, product-led sales experience. So they're yep. able to do that better because they've had the uh, the advantage of perhaps totally. making mistakes the first time around and learning things the hard way. And then they go out and do the second time around, they try and steer away from those mistakes. But we've been talking a lot about you know, founder-led sales. And I want to ask you this question because sure. it is one thing that I've debated you know, quite intense, uh, extensively internally and when I think about founder-led sales, it's less to do with, hey, I'm spending a lot more time in just trying to do sales when I have a sales team, but it's more about building that initial relationship and then handing it over to somebody else who can nurture that relationship further. But creating that idea in, this, in, in somebody's mind that if things go wrong, I'm still one phone call away from the head of the organization. And that yep. changes the game for a lot of people. But along the way, the founder obviously will not have enough time to get into these calls. How do Correct. you create the right recipe yep. of, you know, building that relationship and trust? And when do you think it's the right time for the CEO to drop off that funnel yep. so that yep. he or she may not get involved in, in the sales that experience in maybe after like, I don't know what the right number here is, yeah. 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. Like yeah. this is the playbook. So 
there is a mental model, which means there's 80% truth to this, right? Obviously, there's going to be situations where um, there are nuances involved. But in the in the mental model example, a founder should be... So it goes founder-led sales and then founder-managed sales. So yeah. founder-led sales, you have the highest likelihood of inspiring and exciting and closing the market, okay? Yeah. I need you to make sure that you can, if you're going after, let's say, over a $25,000 deal size, I need to make sure that you can get the first five to 10 people on them on, right? Like, can will they sign? Will they be willing to use this? Um, were you able to inspire them, right? And founder-led also needs to be part of customer success because if they churn, there's no product market fit, right? right? Just because they buy doesn't mean that they're going to stay on. And like, you don't want to have a leaky bucket on the other end. So- the founder plays so many different roles, but first and foremost, can the founder get the first five to 10 customers? Hmm. Yes or no? Checkpoint one. Checkpoint two is, is there enough pipeline that is getting developed that can feed somebody else? Or is there a process that someone else can now follow where they can be held accountable and with high confidence be able to convert um, a certain amount of leads to feed themselves? So- do not hire anyone if the founder is struggling to feed themselves with leads, okay? That means there's stuff that needs to still get tweaked out and perfected. But as soon as like the pipeline starts to get built and the calendar starts to get filled and the founder's like, I don't have time anymore, that is a great leading indicator for you to hire your first two sales reps. And I always say two. Why? One of them will probably not work out. It's very hard to hire two people and them both working out. It's also really hard to hire one person and them working out. So start with two and let them under gives you a bit of a microscope into what's working and what's not. So you go from founder led sales where you're driving the entire sales process to founder managed sales where you're now managing these two people and you're ensuring that they can begin to hit the quotas and the and the accountabilities that you've set and follow that process. Do not hire a VP of sales. Do not let alone do not hire a CRL until you can now say, okay, I can confidently begin to add a third body and a fourth body. Obviously you wanna bring in a VP of sales or advance one of those folks to head of sales when you start to bring in three or four AEs because the founder's not gonna be able to manage that amount. But um, founder-led sales plus founder-managed sales is probably the first year and a half to two years. Mm. A VP of sales should not come in until individual reps have proven that they can be successful at this. Otherwise, what is that person doing? Scaling with more headcount? Right. A true VP of sales is there to build and manage a team. Yeah, right? It's not to get in the weeds. And there's yeah. so much mishiring. I mean, I see CROs at seed stage companies. I see VPs of sales. It's like, who, who are they managing? They're just themselves. So it's like, it's kind of like, it's, there's also this weird title inflation that happens. And I think people get confused. Yeah. No, I've also seen that the VP of sales, when they usually come in, um, are used to much more bigger organizations, process-oriented yeah. uh, stuff, which doesn't really happen early stage. Yeah. And a couple of my portfolio companies, in fact, hired people who were at Salesforce, Oracle, who had 15 years of experience, come into an early stage startup, and they're yeah. unable to like mold themselves to the fast-paced work environment. And also at the same time, they get really frustrated that things are so broken. Like you're still trying to figure out what really works for you. And you're not yep. probably the right person to come in and actually build the playbook from scratch. You're probably the best person to scale things with yeah, totally um, different persona. Set in stone. So to go back to your question about why we started Jellyfish, 
zero to one sales talent does not exist. Yeah. Right. That's the founder's job. So we said, why can't we embed and build the sales talent? Because they eventually graduate. Like zero to one sales talent does not is not the same talent to go from one to ten. Yes. Right. They love that ambiguity. They love figuring it out. Yeah. Um they and love it's not easy. You got you know, no. you you kind of get hit every single day. You get more no's than perhaps the ones who do when you have product market fit, because at yep. least you have something that works and you know what works. So the way that you're able to at least adjust your wholesale process, you know, go to do the right level of prospecting, all of that works yep. out for you at PMF. But without PMF in those early days, you need people who can get into those calls and take nine out of 10 no's every yep. single day. You're right. And th those kind of people are very difficult and hard to come by. And yeah. you're also at the same time having a lot of pressure from the founders to make the sales. So you've got taking pressure from both sides, managing expectations, trying to figure out everything out on your own, and then hoping that everything also works out for you in terms of job security. Because at the end of the day, as a salesperson, you're accountable to numbers and numbers are what really defines your yep. uh, employment at an organization. So it really takes a special uh, breed of talent to continue yes. on the zero to one journey. It does. And there is this gross misunderstanding. Um, I've I've spoken to a handful of founders just in the past two months who will say, Hey, I need to close a million dollars, you know, by July. And I'm like, okay, well, where are you at right now? Zero. And yeah. I'm like, well, how are you like one, where did that number come from? Yeah. Like Obviously, I know where that number came from, right? That is like the underwriting baseline that a VC is going to do to understand if they want to invest in a company. But a, a founder can't say, okay, I need to get a million dollars by July. Like yeah. you need to know how to achieve that. And I usually will say, okay, what math did you use to get there outside of knowing that that's a milestone a VC wants to see? And they don't even know who their target market is either. Yeah. So it's just this like misunderstanding of how hard it is to generate a million dollars in the U S market. Expect 12 to 18 months, especially in the, in this market closer to 18. Yeah. And, and that really comes down to us VCs. Cause what we've done is we've set these benchmarks for, for SAS because, yeah. you know, everybody uses this last SAS playbook in terms of, you know, evaluating companies doesn't matter what sector you're in you kind of like take this aspect because that's kind of like the most advanced i guess in terms of sectors that are given returns yep. and and vcs are more familiar with that and most vc funds today are also basically people who built SaaS companies at the end of the day right of course. You about it historically so when you take a look at it from that lens you just come up with these arbitrary numbers without really understanding whether your market your vertical your business your category can actually hit those numbers from the 10 yep. to 12 months that you have an expectation of it hitting and also like in this market where interest rates are high and it's much harder to, to, to show proof of a million, does that mean milestones need to change, which obviously yeah. will impact valuations and the size of rounds people would be doing. But like we we're still leveraging the same metrics we were in like the, the highest boom we've ever seen. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and the other thing too, is like some founders will make a decisions based off of what VCs want to see. I'm like, if you're not excited to serve the enterprise, you're setting yourself up to fail just because a VC wants to see an enterprise. That's fine. And that is probably what's required to underwrite a lot of the risks that they're taking on. But you have to know what it means to serve the enterprise. Like, and when I say enterprise, I mean like a fortune 5,000 right? a fortune 1,000. I mean, that's a nine month sales cycle. Yeah. So, you know, just be prepared. There's trade-offs in everything, but, um, 
I think these founders are trying to get a mix of what investors want to see, a mix of what they're capable of seeing. And those things are obviously not necessarily aligned right now. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you on that. Especially if you're going up market, you have these bigger ticket clients that are going to be paying you a million, million and a half dollars. Yep. Don't expect those conversations to close in three months. I agree. I agree. And also like you ask VCs what they want to see, they're going to give you an answer to give them confidence. That doesn't mean that's achievable for you. Exactly. So, um, you know. It it takes a, a different approach. Okay, a couple of things. In fact, let me take a step back. One, it really need, takes you a lot of intellectual humility to admit that, yes, maybe I don't have talent around me that can do it. I don't have the product that can actually serve a market that is upstream. We need to like really iterate. We need to go after the small ticket clients, kind of like prove that this is something that yeah. works here. Start building multiple layers. And maybe our product is not ready for it as yet. Maybe our team is not ready. Maybe yeah. I am not ready for it as yet. Yeah. And that level of intellectual humility is not something that most founders typically will have because there's a level of arrogance saying I can sell stuff. Yeah. And that goes back to the points that you previously mentioned as well, especially ones who have done well in their geography. And they've kind of found PMF there, come with the same arrogance thinking, I figured out this market, I'm going to figure out another market. And it often doesn't work. And that level of arrogance is probably the first thing that kind of like hits you. And that the first reality check that most founders end up getting is, oh, come on, uh, the US is a different beast altogether. You need to take a different approach here. Things that yep. work for us back, let's say in India, in China, in different places are not going to work for us here. It's a yep. different playbook altogether. And that's that's exactly right. And um. You know, a, a lot of people say, well, product, uh, no market need is the biggest startup killer. I yeah. actually think it's founder bias. That's the biggest startup killer. There's so many yeah. founders that have this illusion they have product market fit. Like I'll talk to a, I, I spoke to a founder last week and they're like, oh, we have product market fit. I'm like, great. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, we have five paying customers. Where? Mm -hmm. um, we have two in Europe, one in India and two others somewhere else. I'm like, okay, well, you have a smattering all over the place. There's yeah. nothing consistent about those people. They're all paying different rates. You sold to five different types of buyers. Five different markets. Yeah. And I was like, listen, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong, but I'm not going to take on this project assuming you're a product market fit. That is huge risk and it's not true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Product market fit. And like I, product market fit is a term that the, um, that really kind of is like an underwriting milestone for an investor. I don't know if a founder can self-declare product market fit. I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I almost think that it's the markets signaling to an investor de-risking the opportunity, which it, which in, in itself is a level of product market fit, right? Um, I, do. I do agree with that. And a lot of the signaling really comes from active profiling of understanding that space better as opposed yes. to just going and saying, hey, here's my numbers. It's been growing 30% month on month and therefore our product market fit. That's kind of like yeah. typically the approach that most founders end up taking. They look at financial statements and that's where they look to and say, we've got product market fit because the revenues have been growing. Yeah. And that is sometimes such a big, uh, I would say it's a false positive in some sense because <laughs> sure, in some cases you could be growing, but why are you growing? And are you growing in a market that is small? And if you're if you're growing in a market that is small, then you're going to hit a limit at some point. There's going to be stagnation, and when the stagnation happens, either two things could happen. If the VC looks at it also from the point of view that you're growing and just you know if they're not a lead investor, you're getting a two fifty or five hundred k check. A lot of people are not going to go too deep into diligence levels anyway. You can get away in those early days by just telling people you are PMF. But good luck getting to Series A and Series B 
when you're saturated a market and telling a future investor or a current investor why you're not growing at the speed that you previously showed. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of folks that have built customers and that well is drying up really fast. And a lot of those early customers were friends and family yeah. um, who, you know, a well-networked founder getting to a million dollars is probably a lot easier through a warm network. No one's going to argue with that, yeah. but you got to discount that too. Right. Like you don't get to know that as a VC, do you? That's the, that's the, that's, that's where you, as I don't know. I mean, you tell yeah, that's actually more of a question for you. Do you, you I, I don't know. The answer How, to the question is, is this a second time or a third time founder, right? A second time founder with a great exit or even a half decent exit, anything that's above 200, 250 million dollars, you know that this person has a pretty decent network. Yeah. It's easy to tell. Like somebody yeah. with a $10 million, $15 million exit, you kind of like, mm, maybe this is a dis distressed asset that somebody ended up buying yeah. and they, or they actually hired the team for, for some reason. So the signaling there is a little different. But when you do come across founders who are building, who have sold or taken their companies public, the big the big founders that you typically call them in, in the ocean, those are the kind of founders that you know when they hit a million dollars quickly, you're like, mm, I need to look into this a little bit more. Deep. Yeah, And a lot of first-time VCs as well, or, you know, ones who have really not seen these cycles multiple times often end up looking at these financial statements of growth and thinking that the company is on a path to actually um, uh, being on a good, healthy metric. But that may or may not always be true. Yeah. It takes investors a couple of cycles themselves to understand the market better. So mm. if you're an operator who's become a founder, who's become a VC, you take a very different approach. It's all really understanding what sector have you come from. You're a consumer founder, um, sold something in consumer tech, but you're agnostic VC fund, you start looking at things very differently. You're an enterprise SaaS founder who's probably had an exit, then you've come to a VC, then you start looking at your sector very differently, but you look at consumer sector much more differently because you don't really have that lens and you've never really worked there. So it really comes down to what the orientation of the fund also is. If you're an agnostic fund and you're looking at everything, good luck trying to actually do that in the first couple of years of actually launching your fund. So it's it it actually helps you being a vertical specific fund, especially when you start off and maybe fund two, fund three, you can start diversifying. But when you go agnostic from day one and you kind of like work only in one space, it kind of can be very uh, misleading to get mm. into sectors that you don't really understand and start looking at just financial statements of companies and thinking that there's growth. Um, yeah. That's the one that really hits everybody in the foot is even the VCs for that matter will look at a situation like that, need to understand, is this a founder that has a solid network? What, how do they how do they approach sales? They get into the weeds, maybe sit down with them on a couple of diligence level calls and understand what the sales process is. Very few people actually can do that and have done that. Mm. Uh, and also they don't have time. Like imagine you going to a founder in a market that was two years ago and saying, I want to sit into one, one of your sales calls and understand what the process is. Most founders at that point had so much leverage. They would have said, yeah. no, thank you. Fuck off. I don't need you. Yeah. I'm going to get another 10 investors who are banking, banging on my door. And I'm yep. going to go to one of those because this is a market where I'm going to win. But yep. in a market like today where there's a funding winter, if some if a VC says, I want to sit in on your sales process and understand your how is well win, better let them. Yeah. you're like, oh God, this is going to be, I better have all my ducks in a row. Yeah. So it's, it, it also depends on market variability, what, what happens in different markets yeah. and cycles. And are you an and in, I, the investor's market, is the founder's market? Does the investor know enough about the market? So a lot of things get into the success of a company. And just talking about this out loud with you shows you how 
uncertain success or failure is because there's yeah. so many things that are not within your control and, and they're betting they're betting on you especially in the early days i can't speak to late stage but in the early days yeah. they're betting on you and so many founders just want to show them the good yes. but that doesn't build trust either like you know correct me if i'm wrong but like from what i've been told most investors want to know that a founder can admit when they're wrong because that gets them closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. If a founder sits there and is like, we've nailed it, we've nailed it, we nailed it. No one nails it on day one. Yeah, and second, what time founders, second time founders are the first ones to admit. They're like, when I speak to them on the phone, here are five known unknowns I need to go out and validate. Yeah. Amazing. You talk to a first time founder, they're like, hey, we need to get to a million in the next six months. Yeah. How do we do that? We have product market fit in our local market. We just need to scale it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this term intellectual humility is was somebody who, are, who was on the podcast who, who, who told me about this. And he is a second time founder who had taken a company like Upwork Public and then, you know, gone on, built Gupshop. You know, this is a person who is 25 years into the industry talking about just knowing everything about your own business and yeah. being vulnerable in front of your investors. And I took that away from that conversation from him and really understanding well, no matter what field of work you're in, you could be a VC, you could be a founder, you could be a salesperson. It's so much, it's so necessary. And it's probably utmost importance to your organization that you bring that level of um, vulnerability, humility, and admit when you actually don't know stuff. Because you go on and keep showing an investor that only the good things. First question I ask is, okay, what are you hiding from me? Yeah. Like, what what's, what what's the catch? Like yeah. nothing always is great. Tell me about oh, what, what's, what's the bad stuff. Like that's one of the first questions I would ask any of my portfolio companies is, great, I saw your investor update email. Now tell me what are the things that I don't really see in that email. <laughs> like yeah. that's where I can also develop a relationship. That's what we're all trying to do. At the end of the day, we talked about in, in the beginning, it's about building that relationship and trust with your customers. And as yep. we see, my, I do approach my portfolio founders as customers in a way I would have to get on a call with them and say, great, good luck, amazing, love all of that update, but okay, what? where can I help you What's, with? What are the yeah. things that doesn't come across to, yeah. to someone else? And and um, product market fit is a very precise thing, right? Yeah. Like no one no one nails it day one. Never met a founder. Uh, I don't, even the, even the, the public companies that everyone can name off the tip of their tongue. Um, I don't think anyone's found product market fit day one. Right. Um, so it is a game of precision. How do you get to precision through process of elimination? You cannot head your way mm -hmm. to product market fit where they're like, here are three markets. We're going to go after all three and we'll let which one guide us. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's too much noise. There's too much insight to collect. There's no way you will be able to see the, the um, what's not being said. Yeah. Right. And that's where the truth lives. So I always tell founders, I'm like, it's step-by-step. Step. It is process of elimination. When you when you invalidate something, that is you getting closer to the truth. Agreed. If you're sitting there validating everything, you are doing something very wrong. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's 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 so. And I always stress to founders, I'm like, show the VCs where you were wrong. They want to see it, especially seed stage, right? Like, um, they want to know you know how to navigate this. They want to know there was a thought process here that you are going through. And this isn't just some random walk, you yeah. know, through a forest, hoping you find, you know, um, hoping you find your way out. I completely agree with you. And one of the other things that, you know, you kind of like started, um, the idea came into my head when you were talking. Yeah. Is, um, you know, it's just the whole, 
sales experience in and of itself. Now, if I'm a prospect, how am I supposed to believe that I will have an excellent post-sales experience if the sales experience was less than stellar? Mm. And while you were really talking about, you know, how do you go out, go go about with the whole sales process? What's the right way to prospect? You know, during the whole sales process, I've seen very few people put in time to get to know who that prospect is. And people mm. just want to spend a lot more time on perfecting the demo, perfecting the sales pitch, but little to get to really know who you're selling to. Showing somebody that you really care and putting on a good face of customer focus for your brand is somewhat lost with most early stage founders or maybe yeah. stem founders. And that's something that second time founders do really, really well is understanding their customers better. And that yep. does not really mean spending a lot of time on the phone call with them. It's about asking the right questions and understanding yep. what matters. And they really need to trust you, have faith in you and the relationship. Otherwise, they may go another to another seller who has taken time to get them to get to know them better. And I always bring up this example because I think it's a classic case study. And it came up when we were doing a business school um, review. There is somebody sitting at Box selling people at Google, a $200 million contract every year for cloud storage. And Google has Google Cloud. That just goes to show you that somebody is doing something really well there. Like it's it's almost like selling snow to an Eskimo. And that is yeah. what they're really doing. Yeah, Somebody is doing a great job because that relationship or the team that's building that relationship, holding that relationship together is doing a stellar job of continuing to maintain that and drive value to that customer. And therefore, somebody like Google is paying for Box on an annual basis. And this is a company that brings in a billion dollars worth of sales on a yearly basis. So that's like 20% of the revenue coming from one customer. Yep. So it's a great yep. example. So in your experience, what are some of the most common mistakes that you find founders, especially let's say from India or just any yeah. other geography outside of the United States, Committing when they first try to enter the U.S. market. Yeah. So um, I think the first is assuming that any traction or proof in your local market translates into the U.S. It never does. Yeah. Um, two is assuming that your demo is what sells. I can't tell you enough. Most people space out in demos, right? They're multitasking. <laughs> they go off the screen. Like demos are not exciting to the market. Right. Yeah. Open AI is an outlier. If I hear one more person compare themselves to open AI, I'm going <laughs> to throw my head through the wall. Um, open AI is an outlier and not a, the, the, like the way, like, so, you know, the, the, de most demos are boring. Why are they boring? Cause you're sitting there showing me everything yeah. instead of walking me through your product in my eyes on my journey. Mm. Right. It's just showing me that one specific thing. A demo should last no more than five minutes. Mm. Right. Um, three is this sense that getting to um, going out and, you know, sales is just about going out and selling. You have to earn the right to sell. And you earn that right through sell through founder led sales and being as specific and sharp as possible. There are hundreds of thousands of alternatives out there. I don't care what space you are in. There's hundreds and thousands of alternatives. Therefore, the only way you win is to understand that customer better than anyone else and make it feel like what you built was built specifically for them. And that takes learning. That takes validation. Um, that fourth piece is $100,000 deals don't close in 90 days. Yeah. 
They don't close in six months. Okay. They are close to a nine month sales cycle, especially in this market. Mm. Okay. Um, you are, you are, when you go out and build it, listen, inbound lead, I'll take, let me rephrase that an inbound lead probably will close in around six months, a hundred K thousand dollar deal or more. An outbound lead where you are going and inspiring the market, bringing them in, educating them, managing their buying process. That is a nine month sales cycle. Procurement alone right. is two to three months. Um, so if you are coming into the U.S., be aware it will take you twice as long as you think to generate traction. Mm -hmm. It is not a market that moves faster than anyone else. In fact, it's probably the market that's going to move a little bit slower because it's all about value, not about relationships. Um, what else do I, I come in, try and slow down a little bit. Um, uh, the talk, like just not listening, right? Like yeah. there are three things that determine if something is a priority, just because someone agrees it's a problem doesn't mean it's a priority. So what are those three things you can look out for? Are there historics for how they've tried to solve for it? Leading indicator one, that this person is a potential early adopter. Leading indicator number two, is the problem being measured? Meaning, do they know the implication for not solving for it? And problem three, is there a clear owner to the problem? I love that you're also bursting a lot of myths that most founders have, which is which the, the the third of the fourth point. So things that I've heard a lot of founders actually come and say, this is one of the reasons why we think we can sell in the US. The hundred, you know, we can close 100K checks you know, in like three to six months, because we have a strong conviction that we have the right go-to-market here. We've figured this out. We've spoken to as many people who have sold before. We're not going to make the same mistakes. It's so different from learning from somebody's mistakes as opposed to making them yourself and knowing that your company is so different from another company. And just because you've had an outside lens yeah. of somebody's process doesn't mean that you can learn from those mistakes and kind of not repeat those. It's going to be a little more tailored and different to you. Yep. As and opposed if to what heard, somebody else did. And the amount of times I've heard a founder say, we're a little, we're different. Yeah. We're different than anyone, everyone else. Well, that, that's funny because that's what every founder says. Everybody says that. <laughs> or we're lower cost. No, lower cost, like that, sure, that works to some degree, but like people want the, especially in mid-market and enterprise, de-risking is the most important. Not what's lower cost, but who is going to, Make sure that I don't look like a fool for implementing something that does not work. Yeah. Right. And slowing down to go fast can't be iterate, can't be reiterated enough. Mm. When you slow down to learn, the sales process speeds up. Racing to demo will kill the deal. Um, and if you didn't learn something on every call you have with the market, you're wasting their time and yours. You mm. should walk away with some new insight from every single conversation. Right. And be prepared. The market, you should go out understanding what does the market know that I don't know versus how do I educate the market to buy this? Let me ask you a follow-up question on that last yeah. bit. Can you as a founder get better at sales? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. Because- Sales, everyone makes sales out to be this like um, art. Sales yeah. is a science. Sure, there's an art aspect to it, but 80% of sales is the science. Mm. Who do we want to deliver this to and what do they specifically care about? When you have those two things, that's 80% of it. 
Because that's right? the problem, right? The, we've looked at sales or we've been sold that sales is Alec Baldwin talking no! about ABC. I know. That's the that's perception that everybody has about sales. And that yes. is, so that's usually when a lot of founders, when you think about sales, get they feel like it's a very daunting task, especially engineers who become founders, you know, oh. who probably haven't been people facing for the longest period. When, when, when this is my favorite part, when we take founders through our process and like the customer discovery period, they're like, oh my God, I have zeros and ones after every conversation, right? There is no gray area. Like when you go deep enough and when you address the elephant in the room, yeah, you will get your answer. Yes or no. And everyone wants to skirt around like, oh, I don't want to ask that because like, I don't want to be rejected. Just what do you, you're just delaying the inevitable, right? Like straight up ask them like, Hey, does it make sense to get on another call? Is this something that you guys truly want to be focused on today? Or is this something we should wait? Should we wait three to six months to re-engage? If they say, no, let's wait three or six months. You just saved your time. A lot of upfront hours when they're not even ready to buy. Exactly. Um, so address the elephants in the room as well. Like um, I think that's important. And I think, um, you know, it is, it's a conversation. Like you don't need to like tiptoe and act like a salesperson and make everything see happy day. Like just be direct. Yeah. What um, can a founder do, Jen? Like what can a founder who comes from a very deep technical background, who's building a company for the first time, trying to get into like sales and doing, yeah. what are some basic things that they can do? And, uh, that kind of doesn't make that like sales is so difficult for them, yeah. but also need to realize that it's yeah. to led at yeah. the early days. So one is I need you to figure out who do you want to go out and serve? Start there. What is that one specific type of individual where you can speak to 10 or 15 of very like-minded folks mm. that you want to go learn from? Get out of sell to. Let's just start from learn from. I want you to have 10 to 15 conversations with a very specific like-minded group of individuals, right? So you get similar answers um, and have a conversation with them. What are the four things you think they care about? And mm -hmm. ask them, like get out of sales mode, start with learning mode, right? And when you're not in sales mode, you will get more insight than any salesperson will be able to get out of them. Because right. as soon as you say, hey, I'm a founder, I'm deeply passionate about this problem. All I want to understand is how this is manifesting in your organization, if at all. Mm -hmm. Those that are facing the problem will take a call with you. That is the beauty with the U.S. market is if someone is facing a problem and you can speak to it with clarity and some level of specificity, they will give you their time. When you get on the call with them, I don't want you to talk about yourself. All I want you to do is talk about the problem. Why are you passionate about solving it as a founder? What assumptions do you want to test with this individual that they can give you insight into how it's manifesting in your organization? Yeah. And I promise you, you will know from through these conversations, which one of those assumptions is true. And it will be so easy to set, schedule a second call because now they're inspired to want to learn more. Yeah. But you yeah. should not be going on a second call if they're not priority, if it's not a priority. And it goes back to those three things, historics, measurement, management. Mm. If none of your assumptions fall into or carry those characteristics, it's not a priority. So you shouldn't be over, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be spending more time with them. Right. So many founders are like, oh, I just want to show them my product. That will do nothing for you except waste an hour of time for both parties. No one comes out of a demo and is like, oh my God, I need to solve for this. Yeah. Wow, that was so incredible. 
I didn't realize that our first conversation was going to lead to this. I've never seen that happen. Right. This is like wonderful feedback for a lot of founders, especially first-time founders who are going to be listening to the podcast. And a few things that you were talking that reminded me of the book that I was gifted when I first started, you know, anything in the world of... This is a this is from Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends. Uh, oh yeah, and it's a classic. It's a it's a hundred year old book. But of course. when somebody first handed me the book, I'm like, I don't really need this book. Yeah. Why would I need this book? And then when you start turning over some of the pages, you understand the nuances of human psychology, and you know anything that's got to do with sales has got very little to do with the selling part. It's all got to do with what does this person believe in? What do they stand for? What do they want to be? Yep. And when you get to the core of understanding why are people the way they are and what really moves them and what really makes them uh, tick is really when you strike a chord with them and that's where the sale happens or that's where they want to work. People want to work with people and people also they, break up with people. People don't break up with products. People don't break up with companies. People break up because they don't enjoy working with you and people work with you because they really like you at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I, you're, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And People want to be understood. Yeah. If you rush too quickly to try and push something, right, and come across as a, that typical Alec Baldwin personality, deal's done. Yeah. I think this is made for a fantastic episode. We've got 50. This was a lot of fun. This is so much fun. I didn't know where the conversation's going to go. As with most of my episodes, I don't really know where the conversation's <laughs> going. That's the mystery and that's the fun because I don't have questions, I don't have a format. It's, yeah, you know, two people having a conversation about some of the learnings and experiences that they've had. And you were able to share a lot more about how you think about, you know, founders and what you've learned from them and more yeah. what they've learned from you as well. And I hope most of our listeners who are listening to it can take a lot of insights away from selling into the US market. But if there's like one piece of advice that you would just want to share with some of our listeners in terms of the US market outside of the ones that you've already spoken about, or let, let me rephrase that question. One piece of advice that you would give you know, founders who are thinking about the US market and when they need to think about the US market. And yep. maybe second is also from your own personal experience. If you were to go back in time and give yourself some piece of advice, what would that be? Yeah. Um, what piece of advice would I give myself? Um, you would be crazy to start a consulting company in the zero to one stage. Uh-huh. Interesting. In yeah. spite of uh, in spite of jellyfish doing so well, you'd still I mean, oh listen, that. I have so much fun. Let, yeah. let me put it. I have so much fun, but it early, it doesn't get easier. Like, you know, I've, I've done, we've done 300 yacht engagements and it doesn't get easier. Right. It is. And I hope that's a word of encouragement for founders, which is this stuff is really hard and you will face rejection. If you don't face rejection, something really weird is wrong. Like, mm -hmm. You should embrace that rejection because that rejection will redirect you. Right. Um, and, you know, when you build a business, it should get easier as time goes on. Now, granted, we've built our process and that process has been identified and we can put our founders through that and, and all that, but it doesn't get easier. So yeah. my biggest learning is as someone who has built their entire career in zero to one sales, founders, it is hard and it's going to be hard, yeah. but it's powering through that and, and, having that resilience to take rejection and redirect it and, and let learnings compound on top of each other for you to get to that truth. 
Well, that's, I don't think there's a better note to end the episode on. And we're all selling at the end of the day. You're selling your, you're selling you, you're selling the company. I'm selling me. I'm selling the podcast, I'm selling the VC fund. I'm selling everything that I'm doing. Every yep. day we're selling some part of ourselves to other people. Absolutely. And uh, it's a learning process for most of us. We do face rejection on a daily basis, but that's just part of the game. And uh, I've had such a great time learning. I had so, so much fun. This is, uh, this was awesome. It's been more than fun, in fact. So thanks again. This was as engaging as the conversation that we had yesterday. Although it was a little more tempered, a little more tempered, stuff, but this is, <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this, and I hope this turns out to be um, a great learning for a lot of first time founders to start looking at the US market differently and not take yep. things for granted just because there's accessibility today to the US market than ever before, especially for Indian founders. They look at the, the US as it's just a stone's throw away, yeah, it's, it's less than that, you know, it's 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 easy to be swayed by how close we are as a world today, but the complexities of doing business in the, in that part of the world has not really changed. Uh, yep. There's nuances to it that people need to be aware of yep. and hope they got a lot of insight from this. So thanks again for being on the podcast. We'll do another Thank one so sometime much. very soon and really talk about, um, you know, it's things that founders have gotten right because we only talked about things that founders have gotten wrong. We'll probably dive into what things have- Oh, happy to do those right, stuff really that gets right, yeah. Yeah, awesome. That unfortunately brings us to the end of this particular episode, but my God, that was filled with great insights for early stage B2B founders to understand and hopefully crack the US market in years to come. Jen was able to share some fantastic tidbits about founder-led sales, why it is important, and how founders can get better at sales process themselves. Jen believes that you don't need to be a bond salesperson, but this is a skill set that most founders should and will have to get better at if you want to crack the US market. Well, I hope you were able to take away at least 50 to 20 great insights from this episode, if not more. I know I did. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed this episode, the good news is that I'm planning to bring Jen back for a part two. We will sit and discuss a lot more about what founders can do better and what are some of the most common mistakes that founders continue to make in the United States. So if you'd like to be updated about when that episode is going to get dropped, then please go ahead and make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you are updated about all of our future episode releases, including the part two with Jen. And while you're at it, I would really appreciate it if you could also rate our show. Well, on that note, this concludes our episode but we've got another great guest lined up for you on the other side in April. So please make sure you tune back in again and I will see you on the flip side. Until then, stay safe everybody and continue to keep hustling.